Hello and welcome to Pitch Masters with me, your host, Danny Fontaine. This week I speak to one of my heroes, Jeb Lunt. Jeb is one of the leading voices in the sales industry. He's a best-selling author with 15 published books. He's the founder and CEO of Sales Gravy. He's a keynote speaker. And without ever meeting him, he has massively impacted my pitching and sales career. But this week I did get to meet him and I can't wait for you to listen. We talk about qualifying deals, closing deals, relationships, stories. We talk about the ledge, about murder boarding and the chessboard of sales. It's a packed episode and if you enjoy it, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Let's go. Jeb Blunt, what an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I feel like I'm with sales royalty with you in my presence. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. You're very kind to say that. That's uh, that's awesome. I've read uh, a number of your books, but before I go and uh, spoil the surprises, how do you pitch yourself? That's the first question I'd like to ask you. Well, I, you know, that's I don't want to I don't want to mess <laughs> with your with your mojo, but I don't typically pitch anything. Um, I'm, I'm I typically just listen to people. So. The way that the way that if I'm if I'm you know having a conversation about why people should buy me, uh, it always starts with listening to them. I learn what they're interested in, what makes sense to them, and I just simply just build value bridges. So I just connect the dots between what they're looking for, the solution that they're trying to accomplish, or uh, you know an, an objective or an outcome, and then how I can help them get there. So I'm. I, I'm a, I'm a very poor person to talk about pitching because I I don't even <laughs> actually like the term pitch. What 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 term do you prefer? Well, I, again, I'm I, I think that I think that I prefer the term value bridge, but right. um, but no, nobody really wants to be pitched. Like right. nobody wants to be talked at. People want to be heard. And if if you're going to have a conversation with them, and we certainly have to do that in sales, like I have to make recommendations, I have to give a presentation, I have to talk about the things that I do. Uh, but people want you to talk about things in context of what's important to them, not what's important to you. Mm. And they want you to deliver that information in their language, not your language. So I recognize that your world is pitching and, and I recognize that there are places where, you know, especially like you go to like any tech, you know, combinator and there's people standing up and they're standing in front of, uh, of a group of uh, investors and they're in they're pitching their product. Or you can look at Shark Tank and we all want those like magic things that we say and do in those situations that suddenly, I don't know, like magic, get everybody to swoon and go, oh, I want that. Uh, but it really is not about the the words that you're that you choose to use that that somebody gives you. It's about it's about speaking the language of the person mm. that you're pitching to, mm. because they're going to make decisions based on uh, their situation, not your situation. They're going to make decisions based on what's important to them, not what's important to you. And I think that's sometimes what gets lost in the translation. So if you ever spend a lot of time with me, my focus is on discovery. Mm. Like I want to do my research. I want to get below the surface. I want to understand the people that I'm that I'm having a conversation with. And um, and yes, I I do pitch. I'm, I'm teasing about the the word, but uh, but just recently I I did that and it was a complete and utter bomb. Like it completely right. failed. Right. And the reason that it failed is that I got put on the spot and it was go and I went. 
and I missed the mark. Mm. And the reason I missed the mark is I didn't know where the mark was. Like I didn't know where I was aiming because I had no information prior to that. And I didn't, I had no research. And what I probably should have done in that situation is what I teach people, but I didn't do it because I got caught up in the moment which was stop and ask a question. Mm. Like, why, why do you want to know this information? Why is this important to you? So I think that for me, it's about uh, always being able to communicate in their language rather than my language. And at the root of that is creating emotional connections, would you say? Well, it begins with that. I mean, certainly if you, if you have, uh, if you, if you've, if you have built emotional connections, whatever you're pitching has a tendency to land a little bit better than if you haven't built the emotional connections. The easiest way to build an emotional connection is just to listen to another human being. Mm. I mean, and this is where, you know, where when we start talking about pitching, I begin to disconnect from the word. Mm. Because if you think about it, the most unlikable human being in your life is the person who is standing in front of you pitching. Yeah. The most likable human being in your life is the person who is standing in front of you listening. So you have to pitch. We absolutely have to be able to present and we have to be able to talk about our ideas and get people to buy into those ideas. But if we're, if we, if we step back and think about it like this, number one is that we have to be likable. Like if you think about it, when you're coaching people around pitching, the first thing is you got to be likable. So sometimes that just means, you know, being nice, being polite, being kind, being authentic, being yourself, being confident, all those things drive likability. And, uh, and sometimes it's, it's how you present yourself. So depending on your audience, how you dress, right. How you show up, it could be your deck itself. If you're using a pitch deck, what does your pitch deck look like? I mean, is it something that's easy for people to understand? Is visually, is it appealing? All of those things drive likability. But the easiest, fastest way to be liked by another human being is to listen to them, mm. like get, like allow them to have an opportunity to talk. And And sometimes, for example, when you're pitching something, like for example, let's just say we're going into a demo and we're going to pitch the demo. I'm not going to have that opportunity in that moment. That opportunity becomes before that moment. Right. So in my situation where I crashed and burned on a pitch, I didn't have the moment before that to say, Danny, tell me a little bit about yourself. Mm. Tell me what you're looking for. Tell me what's important to you. Walk me through what's happening in your world. But when I do that and you start talking to me and I listen, that's when you begin to like me. Like the easiest, fastest way to be likable is to listen. Mm. So if I can do all those other things and I can listen at the same time, that, that, that works for me. And by the way, when you listen to people, you make them feel important. And because people have an insatiable need to feel like they matter, when you're listening, you give them the greatest gift in the world that you can give another human being. By the way, and that's where this emotional connection really plays, pays out. Because if I'm pitching, right, and I've made people feel important, they feel an obligation because I've given them this gift of making them feel important to, to give something back to me. That gift may be, I'll give you my attention. Hmm. That gift may be, I'll give you a second chance. That gift may be, you know what? It probably makes sense for us to talk again or to keep talking, or why don't I go ahead and do business with you or give you money or whatever the case may be, whatever I'm pitching for. When you do, when you make people feel important because you took the time to listen to them, they, they want to, or at least they feel a need to reciprocate in that moment. 
it's also important that we're we're speaking their language. So when an easy way to make people feel important is to demonstrate that you get them. Mm. So in any pitch, like if I'm pitching, if I can demonstrate to my audience that I get them, like I understand what they're looking for. So think about Shark Tank is a really great way. Yeah. You go to you we'll go watch Shark Tank. And I know that the UK's got a version of the Shark Tank yeah. as well on we BBC. Dragon's Den. Yeah. Dragon's Den, yeah. So if you're on Dragon's Den or Shark Tank and you watch a pitch and you see it land cold, mm. think about what happened. And the the people that were doing the pitch weren't stepping into the shark shoes. They weren't stepping into the dragon shoes. And thinking about what would they want to hear about a company? What would they want to know about you? Even though there are thousands and thousands of hours of them talking at people, telling right. people what I'm looking for, right? They failed to do that. So what they say is that you don't get me, like you don't understand me. Then they don't come out and say that. Like they just go, I'm out. But the point is, is that if you can demonstrate that you get people by speaking their language, they're much more likely to trust you. And if they trust you, they're likely to buy your pitch. So if you think about it, as you're pitching, and I'm, I tease about pitching because I just, the word itself, like, you know, it's one of those words that just grates on my nerves. Oh, you're not the only um, one on this show to have said that, actually. Yeah. 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 So, so but, but if you think about it, if you're going to deliver a pitch that's going to land, that's going to get you what you want, that's going to help you get your desired outcome, think about your audience. And think about asking five basic questions or answering five basic questions for them. So the audience is asking you, right? Are, are these questions about you? They're saying, Danny, do I like you? And I go, yeah, Danny's nice. He's kind. He's good. Like he's, he, he introduced me and says, you know, you're the, you're like sales royalty. I like him. You complimented me, right? Do you listen to me? You, you are, you're listening to me. And I'm sure you're going to feed some of this back to me. Do you make me feel important? Yep, sure do. Do you get me? Like, do you understand me and my language? Or do you understand where I'm coming from? And one of the things you just did right now was like, yeah, a lot of people have said exactly the same thing. I go, okay, well, I'm not the only one here and I don't feel so bad about this. And then do I trust and believe you? And when you answer those five questions in the affirmative during your pitch, you almost can't lose. Mm -hmm. Like they, they feel compelled to lean in and give you what you want. So I think what you're saying as well, and you know, Sales EQ has been a big influence on, on me in my life, it, even in the pitch as well. Whether you like it or not, it's helped me to pitch. Yeah. But a lot of sales EQ, and I'd love you to talk about what that means actually in a second, but a lot of it is what do we have to do before the pitch to make that pitch successful? Well, going back to before the pitch, we need to understand the audience. Now, the easiest way to understand the audience is discovery. So if you read Sales EQ, I say in Sales EQ that 80% of the sales process is discovery. So if, um, I mean, let's just say that that you're pitching a business idea mm. and you're trying to get investors. Well, the, the best thing you could do is do discovery. Now, if you could go talk with them, the people that you're going to pitch to, that'd be awesome. Right. Like you could sit down with them and say, help me understand what you're looking for. Like what would, how would, uh, how would this pitch connect with you? If I could ask those questions, great. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you're in a situation where there's going to be a wall drawn between you. So then what you have to do is just go do your research. Like what kind of companies do they invest in? What kind of companies do they buy? What are the, what are the commonalities and patterns that you see with the companies that they invest in and buy? How, um, who are these people? What are they like? What can you learn about them? So it just begins with discovery and homework. 
an, a good example of that would be, and I tell the story in the book about working with my father when I was a kid and in, in college, I would help him pick out juries because he's a, he was a, just a brilliant attorney. Well, they did discovery. I mean, they went in and they, they asked questions before they showed up in trial. They weren't like pitching their, you know, their case to the jury cold. They already knew everything was going to mm-hmm. happen in the courtroom. But in some cases, they couldn't understand exactly who the jury was because you can't go talk to the jury. Right. But we knew who they were. So we would do deep research on those jurors. And what I would do for my father is build profiles of these individuals so that when he went in, he would speak their language. Mm-hmm. He would change just a little bit. He would, he would in a group of 12 people, he would alter even, even his pace and tone and his dialect. He would alter just a little bit as he made eye contact with each juror so that they would feel like, wow, he really gets me. This person's speaking my language. They, they, they understand me. So if you want a better pitch, you got to start with better discovery. The best discovery, I can go talk to you. I can learn from you and ask open-ended questions, engage you in a conversation. The second best discovery is going to be your research and really trying to understand the language of the people that you're pitching to. Uh, because you always have to understand that they're they're going to choose the next step. They're going to choose who to do business with or who to give money to on based on their reasons, not yours. Right. And so you want your pitch to be focused on their reasons. I was actually going to ask you about your dad, because something that I've come back to a number of times in my career in sales and in pitching is the things we can learn from trial attorneys. And, you know, the stories that they tell, the way they they win juries around in such a strong emotional way, which is often overrides any of the rational evidence that we see in court. And I think there's so much to learn from them. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, the the what my dad always says is that, you know, you you, you have to understand that there's 12 people making a decision. They're mm. humans. Right. And and there, in fact, we were watching. I tell you, we were watching Kavanaugh last night, a BBC show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it, we're watching really early episodes. So this is these are like back when the you know we were in, we were in a four by three frame. But uh, but he was uh, he w- was having a conversation with his client in an almost impossible case, and he said exactly the same thing. We're talking to people. We're talking to human beings. So what we have to do is connect with those human beings at the emotional level, so that they either have enough doubt, they like you enough that they're going to find that doubt. So they'll let you off or that they believe you and they trust you. So attorneys walk into a courtroom knowing exactly what's going to happen. But typically witnesses don't realize that they said this over here. 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 And when the attorney can get them flustered and get them to say an untruth, which is what Kavanaugh's I'm a big BBC fan. I, all, all I watch is BBC shows, so I, I don't speak with the British accent at this point. But um, <laughs> oh, I'd love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's what you know. That's 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 what he's you know in that show he's so brilliant at doing. He he gets a witness to lie, but he does it in a way where in a lot of cases he'll either you know he'll get them upset, but sometimes like he gets close to them and then ask them a question, and then they you know then then they make the mistake and they and they get too familiar with him. But if you're in a pitch, in a lot of cases, the same thing happens to you. Like, so you you sit there, you've got your pitch deck up, you go through boom, 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 and then they start asking you questions. Mm. And if and if you stumble, mm. if you show insecurity, if something doesn't add up, you are done. Especially when the stakes are high. Yeah, 
And do you have any advice for people who are in that situation? And because of what you've just said, it, it feels so high pressured and you can almost stumble on your words before you've even realized what you've said and made a genuine mistake that way. And I think a lot of people get really anxious and nervous because there's so much underlying. Do you have any advice yeah. for that as a situation? Yeah, the um, the best thing is is what, and I talk about this in Sales EQ, but is murder boarding. Mm. So, okay, so you're going to go into a pitch. What where where we fail is we go into a pitch or we go into a proposal or we go into a meeting. We're gonna we're gonna present something to a group of people, and it's usually a group of people. This is infinitely easier if it's just one person, but when you've got multiple people throwing things at you and you haven't prepared for the the questions that they're going to ask you, it's easy to get flustered. So essentially what happens is they ask you a hard question. That question puts you in a little bit of a corner. The fight or flight response kicks on. And when that happens, it's very, very hard for you to think. So you, you have a difficulty rising above the sort of the instinctual emotion of get out of here. I'm going to get rejected. They're not going to like my answer. Uh, trying to find the answer. And then choose your response, getting your executive brain back in charge. So there's a couple of things that you can do. First is murderboarding. What murderboarding is, is if you're going into a pitch, you want to get some people around you and you want to practice every single question, every objection, everything that they might say to you in that moment that could kill your pitch. So in other words, they come at you and they go, well, what about this? And you've got to be able to have the answer for it. And by the way, back to attorneys, what do you think attorneys are doing with their key witnesses before they get on the witness stand in court? Right. They put them in a room and they pound them with questions. What if they ask this? What if they ask that? What if they ask that? And they, and they, they put them through the paces so that when they're there, it doesn't seem so bad. Yeah. And they've already learned how to get past those answers. So what all murder boarding is, is you think about go step in the shoes, every potential question, but don't just think about them. Get somebody to throw the questions at you and practice, practice, practice. The second thing is using a little technique called the ledge. And the ledge is what neuroscientists call the magic quarter second that you need when you get yourself in a situation where it's hard to think, like you're in a, you're getting nervous and someone's asked you a hard question and you're trying to find the answer for it. It's very difficult to think in that moment, but you have the answer. It's your pitch. Right. Like you know the answer to these things. It, the problem is, is that when that fight or flight kicks on, you can't really figure things out. So what all the ledge is, is something that you do or say or ask in that moment that gives you just a moment to get your executive brain, your neocortex back in charge so you can give a rational answer. The easiest way in a pitch to do that would be to say something like, um, that's, that's a really interesting question. How, why do you ask that? Or how so? Or a lot of people, a lot of people said exactly the same thing. Why is this important to you? So you can, you can just turn it around very quickly with a question that gets them talking, that gives you a moment to think about it also to clarify what they mean by it. So sometimes people will say, blah, 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 blah. And I'll go, well, I mean, when you say that, what do you mean? Like, can you explain what that means to you? That gives me just a moment. Uh, the other thing you can do is you can just say something. So, for example, if I said, you know, Danny, I just don't like the term pitching. Like that might send, you know, set you off because what you do is pitching, but you handled it perfectly. You said, well, a lot of people say the same thing. And I totally get where you're coming from. That little moment, a lot of people that say, say the same thing. I've heard that often. That's a question that most people ask me. That moment of ledge gives you just a second versus jumping right into it. 
but one thing that I would say to people in a pitch where if you get put in a corner by a question, that could be answered in you know multiple ways is always go back to great question. Could you tell me what you mean by give them the term right. before you answer? That way, you know, you're answering the right thing, because one of the things that will happen to us if we answer the wrong thing and they go, well, that's not what I was talking about. I was asking about this. You know, the emotions go crazy and now you're chasing the answer and you come off as insecure or that you're not confident in what yeah. you're pitching. And at that moment, anytime you show insecurity or lack of confidence or, or lack of assertiveness in your message, people don't trust you. And if they don't trust you, they're not buying your pitch. Yeah, and I've seen that before in pitches. Even after kind of heavy murder boarding sessions, yeah. you get asked a question and it's nearly the question you've been practicing. And so yeah. you give the answer that you've got on the tip of your tongue and it's not the right, it's not the right answer. It's a trap potentially you've got to be careful of. Yeah. Quick, quick question. Why is it called murder boarding? Do you know? It's a, I, 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 I'm, you know, I'm going to tell you this answer and I'm going to try to think of it and make sure I get this right. But uh, but I, I think that it's a, it's an, it's an old, um, legal term where, you know, you're going through the process of putting all of the potential things that have killed the, the, you know, the suspect. So you think about, I go back to the, the, you know, the BBC, if you think about like, uh, uh, you know, the DCIs in there and they've got all of the pictures up. And and then you've got the murder victim there. So you're looking for all of the different pathways to that particular murder victim. In this case, you're looking through all the pathways that could kill your deal or kill your pitch. So I, I'm almost positive that's where it comes from. I've used the term forever and ever and ever. So when I wrote about it, it's just because it's a term that I use, yeah. not necessarily because I went and found it someplace and put it in there. But my, that's what my, my old bosses and my boss's bosses always called it. Well, because of you and your book, there's a number of people in IBM that now use the term as well. So there you Is go. that right? Very, yeah. very good. <laughs> in your book, you also talk about personas, which is really interesting. And I've had other guests on who are really kind of into disc profile and these kinds of things. Now, without going into all of those individual personas, I have a different question for you, which is one that I've been asked a few times. If you're in a room with a mixed group of personas, some who are CEOs who want answers quickly, some who are very analytical, some who are very talkative and, you know, conversational. Do you have an approach? Because that always seems to be a bit of a gray area for me. One-on-one, -on -one, you can kind of really match a person. Yeah, one-on-one, -on -one it's easy. If in, your, in a room, I go back to what I learned in my, with my dad. Like, he really studied the room and made an attempt to – almost mirror and match the people. I mean, if we go back to NLP, that's essentially what you have to do is you have to start thinking about the people you're dealing with. My, my strategy with, with people is ask them a question, get them talking. Because when I get them talking, I get a very clear indication of where they fit right. and, and or how they talk to me. So if I, someone says, that's really interesting, tell me, boom, boom, boom. Okay, I'm dealing with a director. I need to go boom, boom, boom. I, I need to go back to them at, without a long story. On the flip side of it, if you've got, say, an, a person who's like really talkative and they're, they're, you know, they're easy to talk to, easy going, they're energizers, one of the big, big uh, pitfalls with those folks is they make you feel so comfortable that you just talk and you talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. But what we don't realize is that they want to be the center of the attention. And, and so you end up taking the, the spotlight from them and they end up resenting you for it. Um, 
you've got some people that will ask you question after question after question after question. And because of the way our brains work, we literally get a dopamine hit when we're talking. They they ask you questions. You start talking, then you talk some more, and then you talk some more, and you talk some more, and you talk some more, and you end up talking yourself out of the deal. And this happened to me. I was in a, um, a conversation with a group of executives back in uh, at the beginning of December, and I'd just gotten off an airplane and my guard down, and there was a person there that was asking me questions, and I just started talking and they asked me right. another question, started talking. I realized that, you know, at the end of the meeting, I'd basically just like given away like in everything. Like I right. just like, there was no reason for them to ever have a conversation with me ever again. Cause they, they had talked me right out of all the information that I was supposed to be keeping close to the vest. And that happens to everybody. Like we, we can get in those situations, especially we let our guard down. So you gotta be careful with that. And then when I get someone who is really, tedious like they they they're going to ask very detailed questions they're going to say i don't quite understand how this adds up in those situations you've got to be very very careful especially when you're pitching because you're dealing with a person who's an analyzer and the analyzer and you can tie this to the different disc models and but the analyzer is eyes dotted t's crossed the analyzer is a naysayer the analyzer is looking for what's wrong not what's right and in a lot of cases especially in sales, uh, especially for entrepreneurs, we go into deals, man. And we're like, we expect everybody to understand it the way we understand it. Like we're, we're pitching based on our intentions, not their intentions. And we're like, you know, we're, we've got the big picture and we're, you know, we're excited and we're passionate. And then you get this little analyzer in there that's going, well, I mean, could you walk me through that number over there? Let's do the math together. And, and, and you want to go back to big picture, they're like they're looking for what's wrong. They're looking for your mistakes. They're looking for in your slide. They're the person that there's a space between the end of the sentence and a period. Yeah. And they're like, you know, there's a space in there on that. You know, you should fix that. Like they're picking out yeah. those things. And that can completely unnerve the person that's the big picture person. So the big thing is just these this isn't hard. It just takes awareness mm. and you have to, again, go back to rising above your emotions. This is essentially what sales EQ is all about, right? It was about, as uh, it was about how we manage our own emotions so that we can influence the emotions of other people in the context of selling and pitching and uh, going through the process of moving people from one place to the other and in terms of decision-making. But what I notice is that, uh, is that if I'm one-to-one, it's infinitely easier than when I'm in a group of people. When I'm in a group of people, then I've got to be very, very, very careful that I'm sensing, paying attention to how people are communicating to me. And you know, my advice to salespeople always is that none of that matters at all if they're talking. Right. It only matters when you're talking. So the more you can get them to talk, the deeper the emotional connections, the easier it is for you to uh, to make the, the the sale. And last thing I would say is that when you're pitching, you're talking, right? And then afterwards, there's going to be questions, pushback. There's going to be people um, giving you objections. So one of the most important things is you pitch and then there's people talking is that you really take your time to listen to what they're saying to you. And that's when you can begin making those emotional connections or those value connections where you say, oh, you said this, here's how we do this. 
Oh, you said this. Here's how we do this. Oh, you said this. Here's how we do that. So each of those connections is based on that individual stakeholders list of things that are important to them. I think it's worth kind of just making that point even even once more, more slowly. This listening thing, everyone goes, yeah, I know I've got to listen. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. But then on the other hand, people who are learning about sales and learning about pitching read all of these books. And there's so much information that you can become completely overwhelmed with trying to remember all of these profiles and what questions to ask and what to do in every situation. And actually, I think the most important thing is if you listen and you are in the moment and you take yes. in what the person said, it's probably the biggest piece of advice I, I, I think that you could give someone, right? Yeah, I think that the biggest the biggest mistake people make when they're listening is they're thinking about the next thing they're going to say right. or ask and not being in the moment. And the term that I use for it is dual process. So you have to be in the moment, paying attention there, using your empathy to sense not only the words they're saying, but how they're saying it. And then on the other hand, you have to be outcome driven. So you have to you think about, to be, okay, yeah. yeah, where am I going to go on the chessboard? And the, the hardest thing is being in the moment and then listening and thinking, okay, two moves down the chessboard, I need to be here. Four moves, I need to be here. And in this moment, I need to be here. And then at the same time, still being present. And that's a, it's a practice thing. You know, over the years, you, you begin to hone that so that you, you're picking up on both what's said and unsaid and connecting the dots. But that's the art. I mean, and it's not easy. Uh, but the the key is for me is uh, you just have to learn how to be genuinely interested in what the person is saying, and if you can focus your attention on that that little that little singularity, this is a human being in front of me. What they're saying is important. Pay attention to it and let them finish. You typically will get the get the message. The hardest thing is knowing knowing the chessboard, knowing what you're pitching well enough, and being able to to listen to both emotions and facts and connect the dots for them. That's, that's really the art in all of this. And it just takes practice. It's, part of it is concentration as well. I know you talk about eye contact and actually if you break eye contact and look down at a piece of paper, that's the sort of thing that can throw you and then you are, you know, nowhere in the conversation. Is there anything you do before a big, we won't necessarily call it a pitch because it's not necessarily going to be a pitch but any kind of sales meeting, do you do anything beforehand to prepare mentally so that you're ready for that intense kind of concentration that you need in these meetings? Personally, probably not a lot. You know, most of, most of my preparation is just practicing. It's yeah. reviewing the, the content. I don't typically have some exercise that I go through mentally to prepare myself. I think some people do. Uh, I'm, I, I'm just built a little bit differently. I don't. I don't typically get unnerved by those type of uh, conversation. I want to know who my stakeholders are. I want to know why I'm there. I've typically done deep discovery prior to that, so I'm very rarely walking into a situation where I think I'm not prepared, or I think that there's going to be something that I don't know that might happen, and you know, and turn things upside down. Uh, where where I fail is where I fail on the in the early preparation. Like if I'm walking in and I really haven't taken the time to think about the individuals that are going to be there and practice what 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 the pitch is going to be or what the message is going to be, that can get me. 
Uh, it, it does from time to time. I've had, you know, I've had a couple of situations where I failed, but it, just recently, but it's, it's rare and it's almost always the early preparation. Like it's not some mental game or, you know, some thing I'm doing with myself where I'm listening to music right. in my car or what have you. I, I, I'm, I'm just not that, I'm not built that way. Uh, but I do know that if, for example, if I'm preparing for my presentation or my pitch, especially if I do it the night before or the day before, and especially if I do it even three or four days before, and then the night before the pitch, I get a really good night's sleep, everything comes together. The worst thing you can possibly do is you're prepping in the morning for a pitch in the afternoon and you didn't sleep on it. The 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 neurosynapses or whatever in your head, those connections just don't don't get made. And that's just science. When you do that, and if you're tired, like if you're doing an all-nighter because you got to get up and do a pitch the next morning, all you're doing is shooting yourself in the foot. So truly the best thing that you could do is get a good eight to nine hours of sleep prior to whatever you're pitching. The amount of taxis I've been in frantically preparing for the pitch for it, we're on the way to, yeah. yeah. I, I can uh, absolutely agree with everything you've said. But have you always been quite a confident person then? Because I think there might be people listening going, yeah, well, that's because you're Jeb Blunt and that's all well and good, but I don't feel like that. Have you always been quite just, have you found it quite easy to speak to people and be in front of an audience? Yes. I've always found it easy to speak with people and be in front of an audience. That doesn't mean that I don't get nervous. I mean, I've walked in, I walked into an arena, there were 25,000 people in the arena and I thought, okay, I I might not make it out of this. That was a lot of people. Uh, So I have always been that way. However, and I I just want to make this point. I'm confident when I'm delivering a pitch at the end of a sales processor cycle, like like I've I've done, you know, the, the pitch I got pulled into the day ago that was just, I mean, it was just completely cold. Right. I was a little nervous doing that because I didn't I didn't have any preparation and yeah. there's people that I don't know and like it was just a it was just an odd situation to be in. I learned a great lesson for that. That don't ever do that again. Like that yeah. was not that was not the optimal way for me to perform. And by the way, I think there are people out there that are really good at that. Like you say, I need you to pitch this, you give them a subject and they show up and you know they're amazing. That's not me either. But for me, the confidence comes from I manage the process. I run the process. I believe that there is a process. And I believe that process begins, as you said earlier, with emotional connections. I believe that it is deep discovery. I believe that it is understanding all the stakeholders that are involved. I believe that it is bending their process back to my process and managing that so that I give myself the best chance to to build those emotional connections. I believe that Part of what I'm doing is getting them motivated to want to do business with me based on those emotions. And at the same time, leveraging my pitch to eliminate perceived alternatives so that I've been win probability in my favor that they'll pick me. Mm. And I believe that, for example, when I said that I was in this this, this pitch and I gave everything away, I, I violated my number one rule in that situation. And I knew it when I walked out of the door, yeah. I gave my leverage away for free. So I believe that in a lot of cases, even if I'm the weaker party, the one thing that I have is I have information and that information is something that other people want. And as long as I can use that leverage to bend the way that they're going through the process to the way I'm going through the process, I give myself a better chance of building that relationship so for me, the entire thing is a chessboard. It's all, all, that's all it is. And it's a chessboard based on each move gives you a different win probability. 
So my confidence comes from from the very beginning. I'm setting myself up and up in a situation where I have a much higher probability of winning than I do of losing. And oh, by the way, and this is important, Danny. I don't spend a lot of time in situations where I have a low probability of winning. Right. If I have a low probability of winning, I'm probably not going to be there. I've walked away a long time ago. And specifically in sales, I heard someone say this the other day ago, in any, you know, in any deal with salespeople, there are two winners. Um, the person who sold the deal and the person who walked away really early in the deal right. because they realized they had no shot of selling it so they could spend their time on something else. Right. And everyone else is a loser. And that's another thing that... People, you know, sometimes give themselves a big pat on the back when they come second in a pitch or in a, in a deal. And it, it drives me crackers. <laughs> Why is that? I don't know. <laughs> they, they think, well, you know, we gave it a really good shot. And um, the client said we were second. So we've got something to feel good about. And one of my favorite stories in, in your book is the, the, the La Petite story, because that rings yeah. so true in, in the industry that I'm in. Could you, could you paraphrase and retell that? Yeah, so uh, I got hired by a, a private equity group to come in and be the vice president of corporate services for an early childhood education company. Not that I know anything about early childhood education, but there was a division of the company that sold on-site childcare facilities into corporations. So you've got a big building, you've got people who come to that building and they have children. There was a, a movement and there still is, to, 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 and it, this has changed a little bit since the pandemic, but there was a, a real movement that you can have happier employees if their kids came to childcare or day, you know, daycare at the um, at the corporate office. And that was very true. People loved it. It was the only deal in the world where when you closed it, there was a whole group of parents who gave you a big hug. Like it was, you know, it was purposeful work. But when I got to this company, uh, I discovered that they hadn't sold a new facility in 12 years. And their their biggest competitor, a company called Bright Horizons, was just eating their lunch on every single deal. Even though the company was doing, you know, anywhere from two to five proposals or RFP responses every single month. So every month they were doing RFP. So they had an entire like bid desk set up for it. They had salespeople set up for it and they weren't closing anything. Mm. So I started digging through it, trying to figure out why they weren't closing. And I you know, went through the RFPs. I went through the responses. I went through what I knew and I couldn't find any reason at all. And just one day an RFP came in from a, for a company called Advo uh, which doesn't exist anymore. They were long, long since been bought by another company. But a, um, a an RFP came in and uh, they were getting ready to send it out. And I just asked the question, does anybody know anything about this? And the answer was no. And I'd like, well, why are we doing that? Well, we got it. So has anybody called and asked any questions? Nope. And oh, by the way, Jeb, you can't call and ask questions. It says right here in the RFP, you can't talk to them. We have to get this in first. And, you know, it dawned on me in that moment what was happening. Like we we had no relationships with anybody. We were getting these things blind and we had no chance of winning them because our competitor, Bright Horizons, was writing them all. I mean, they, mm -hmm. these were they already had the relationship with them. And these are sometimes, you know, 10, 20 million dollar deals. Nobody's doing that unless they check all the boxes. So right. they were essentially you got to send RFPs out to get the answer. So uh, what we did in that situation is I said, we're, we're not going to do any more RFPs unless we talk specifically to the CFO or excuse me, the CEO. And, uh, 
And they looked at me like I'd lost my mind. What do you mean? <laughs> we won't, they, they're not going to let us do that. I go, well, if they won't let us do that, we're not doing the RFP. Right. The only way we're going to do this is talk to the CEO. And, and the reason is when you're doing an on-site childcare facility, that's going to cost $20 million. The, it's a board level decision, but the only person that's going to make the decision is the CEO. So I don't care if it's the, if the HR people send it to you, if anybody sends you, that's who we're going to talk to. And oh, well, we're, we're, we'll never win anything at all. And I go, have you seen the evidence? We're not winning anything at all. So we, we started with this company, Advo. We just called them and said, we're not sending the RFP in until we talk to the CEO. There was gnashing of the teeth. We're not going to do that. But they needed us because there was only three or four companies in the entire United States that could do this. So finally, they agreed. And we, we flew to Connecticut. We uh, sat down with the CEO. We had a wonderful conversation. Turned out that there were things that he wanted that really weren't in the RFP because the RFP had been written by right. professionals who write RFPs. And he liked us enough that he introduced us to the committee of parents that were were in charge of, of the decision making. We, we spent a couple of hours with them. We convinced them to redo the RFP to include the things that they were interested in. And we ended up winning that deal. And right. it was awesome. Like we, we built the greatest childcare facility. We did really, really cool work there. And we wouldn't have gotten it if we hadn't changed the game. And oh, by the way, if they said, no, you can't talk to the, 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 the CEO, we knew that that was never going to get decided on. It was going to be a no decision. So all it was was us spending time giving him free consulting for something that was never going to happen. So it, all it was was a simple test. And when we could talk to the CEOs, we had a much better chance of winning. We didn't win them all, but, but that year we closed 12 of them and we hadn't closed any. The next year we closed 18 and we changed everything by just changing the way that we were going about the, the marketplace. So when I, and I do the same thing now, when we get RFPs, now we got one uh, last summer, it was from a company that 200,000 employees, they needed a global sales training company. They did one of those stupid things where it was the, the, the Thursday before a holiday, we need it tomorrow, mm. you know, and nobody's going to be here. And, uh, and we just didn't respond. Like we didn't do anything. I looked at it and said, throw it in the trash. I'm not doing this. This is right. stupid. We don't know anything about them. We're not, we're, it's a holiday weekend. We're, you know, we're, we would like to enjoy ourselves. We're not stopping everything. So my sales rep's like, well, you know, this is bad, but okay. The next week they called and said, are you going to respond to it? We go, well, you sent it to us with a day to do it. We haven't, this is like a two week exercise. We'll need more time. And they went, okay, we'll give you more time. And then, right. uh, you know, and, and, and then we said, well, the thing is, is that we don't need more time and we need to talk to your stakeholder group. Well, you can't talk to them. We said, okay, well, that's fine. So we didn't do anything. Right. Two weeks later, the phone rings. <laughs> they, uh, are you going to turn the, the response in? And we went, well, we, you said we can't talk to the stakeholder group. Well, we can't talk to the stakeholder group. We can't respond to this because like, we have no idea what we're responding to. Okay, well, let me go see. A week later, okay, you can talk to them. You get 15 minutes each. My rep's going, okay, let's go, let's go. And I said, Tell them we want three hours each because now <laughs> I'm asking for stuff, right? I love it. So you can't have three hours. Okay, no problem. Didn't do anything. Two weeks later, they came back again. We're having a conversation for three hours. And all it was was our ability to manage our emotions and say, we're not playing this game if we don't have enough high, or we don't have a higher, highest, you know, high probability of winning. And then if we're going to play the game, at least get us in position because 
like when we saw the RFP the first time, I knew exactly which one of my competitors wrote the RFP. Like right. I, I know the language. Right. So we're not going to win something in my competitors writing it unless we can rewrite it. And in that case, we got them, we convinced them to rewrite the RFP because when we talked to the stakeholders, the people that were involved in this, who it was important to, what they wanted and what the RFP was asking us to reply to were two different things. And when we pointed it out to them, they went, oh, so we got an RFP back that at least put everybody on an equal ground so that, and by the way, we weren't the only company that was doing that. So this is, we were, I mean, we weren't alone, but at least we we're in even, you know, even grounded and we, we did not win the deal, but it, but when we were playing, we at least played in a way that we had a good chance of winning the deal. And I love that story because I've seen it so many times over the years. You, you, you want to ask for time or whatever, and people on, on your team are going, no, we're not allowed. Procurement <laughs> said no. And, and it's like, well, if you, if, if you ask and they say no, then we shouldn't be going for this deal because it shows that they're not that interested in us. If they really wanted us, they would do anything that we asked That's for. That's right. Pretty much. That's exactly right. And now the argument that's, well, we're a small company. We have to play. And I go, yeah, you know, sometimes you play so you can learn. I've done that as a small sure, company. I've sure. played in, in deals so I can learn. Sometimes I've played and I didn't win. And I've had conversations with them afterwards and said, can you teach me why I didn't win? And they teach me and mm -hmm. I've won the next one because at least I, I got a relationship in between. Sometimes I'll do an RFP that we have no chance of winning just because they're an existing client and I'm just doing them a favor and I don't want to hurt the relationship. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not doing it. I don't, I just don't do fire drills, Danny, on, on this things. So you send it to me and you got, you give me 24 hours to get it done. I'm throwing it in the trash can. What's interesting is that you mentioned the guy on your team going, but hold on a minute. No, 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 no. And you know, I've seen these people as well and it comes back to emotions again, but this time not any kind of emotional connection with the client, but I think you call them disruptive emotions, right? Yeah, they're disruptive emotions. Well, the disruptive emotions, I'm going to lose something. I mean, typically the person doing that hadn't sold anything in six months, right? Mm. So they're like, they're, they're, their disruptive emotion is I'm desperate. I want something. Their, their disruptive emotion is anything that's in the pipeline is better than nothing. Like at least there's something there. And, and they don't often take into account the amount of time and effort that's involved if you want to win one of those things. Mm. So it's just, you're just scratching lottery tickets and it totally is disruptive emotions. And I think we've been kind of, you know, I don't know how you say it, but we have been tiptoeing around these disruptive emotions from the very beginning of our conversation. It's how do you manage your emotions in the moment? How do you rise above them so you can choose your response? And for me, the easiest way to manage your emotions around RFPs in particular is to have a full pipeline. If you have a full pipeline, if, you've, mm -hmm. if you're selling lots of things, then you just don't get caught up in that in that losing vortex of, oh, oh you don't understand, we can't. Or I, I'm not going to be able to take that step or we can't ask them that. And you go, well, if you if you have a full pipe, if you've got emotional control, what's the worst they can say? No. Yeah. I mean, and if and at that point, we still get to make a decision. We're in control of whether we respond to this. We're in control of whether we do this. We're in control of whether we we exert the the uh, or, or I guess put the resources up for a response to an RFP. I mean, those responses in the childcare you know facilities they were like this thick. Yeah. If we walked into Mercedes with one of those deals that was we had binders that were stacked up like almost three feet on the table because it took that much effort 
to you know to to complete an RFP response because we're talking about people's kids. I mean, we're talking about how you're going to care for them and educate them, and you're talking about liability. And there are a lot of people who need to see exactly what's going to happen. Mm. So I, I think I think for the person who's going, no, but you can't, or hurry up, let's get this done, or we can't throw that away, they don't take into account the cost and the impact of their organization of wasting time on opportunities that you have no chance of closing. Right. Do you, do you use any kind of other indicators to know whether you're going to be able to close a deal? Well, my, my biggest indicator, my biggest qualifier is engagement. And mm. so always begin with, are they qualified to buy? Like, so do they have the money to buy? They have a budget to buy. Primarily, are they in the buying window? So do they have, you know, are they contractually able to buy? Uh, do I have the right people in the room? So all of the things that we would typically take a look at, and there's all kinds of different qualifying, you know, acronyms and frameworks, but let's assume I've got a qualified prospect. Next is engagement. So do they match my effort? My biggest qualifier, do they lean in? Do they answer my questions? Are they being transparent with me? When I ask for next steps, do they agree? And do they show up? Do they introduce me to other people in, the, in, in their company? Do, do, they, do they sincerely desire to make a change? Is this important to them? Now, that doesn't always mean that if they're totally engaged, they're going to buy from me. If I could win every single deal, I would bottle that up and I would sell <laughs> it for billions of dollars. I don't yeah. win every deal. But but engagement's a good indicator that you're going to move forward. And the more engaged people are and the more that they move to next steps with you, these little micro commitments along the way, the more ownership they feel of the deal itself. So even, by the way, if you get to the end and you lose – they feel an obligation to at least teach you why you lost. Right. And some of those lessons have been game changers for my organization where I've, I've built enough a relationship where people feel comfortable saying, Hey, we just couldn't take the risk on you on this situation. We wanted to give it to you. We really liked you, but we, we needed something that was safer than you. That's, mm. there's, that's fair. That's human emotion. But you learn that you go, okay, the next time I've got to show them why I'm safer. So, so, it, but if they're moving forward, if they're engaged, if they're communicating, if they're doing all those things, I'll continue to plow resources into it. But think about a blind RFP. A blind RFP is the antithesis of engagement. Yeah. It is, here's our form, fill it out. Oh, by the way, you can't talk to us. You can't talk to anybody in there. You need to sign away your life. I'm getting RFPs these days where you have to sign the agreement that they want you to sign in the end yeah. before you even fill out the RFP. So have you yeah. seen those things? I have, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Like, I'm like, yeah, I got to go to the, like, you're signing up for, these are the things. If you win this, you agree in advance that this is going to be in the contract. Before you've like, negotiated or, or exactly. anything. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, so you're, so <laughs> like, I, you know, those just, those just go, I just delete and move on. And, and, and that's bad for the companies because they're not getting, they're not getting, other companies that come in, they're losing out because they're doing this, but it's, it's, a, it's, we can do this, a, a whole nother podcast on risk shifting, right. but that's what they're doing. Right. So, but that's the antithesis of engagement. But if you said, I need to talk to the stakeholders for three hours each, and I want that time and they agree to it, that's engagement. Mm -hmm. And then when the stakeholders show up and you're having conversations with them and they're talking with you and they're like, it's authentic and it's sincere. We're not, we're not hiding things from each other. That's engagement. When yeah. I say, hey, I need some more information. Could you get me this information? And they go, sure, I'll have it to you on Thursday. 
that's engagement. I just want to loop back on on something you mentioned a short while ago, which is keeping some stuff close to your chest or your vest, however we want to yep. use it. Now, in my business, it's not necessarily salespeople doing the selling, or at least not all of it. A lot of it's mm-hmm. down to technical experts and you know the right people in the room. And their idea of a sale might be giving the client as much information as possible to try and help the client with anything that they might need. It's, yes. uh, you know, it seems like the natural human thing to do. Can you talk me through a bit about what kinds of information we might not give and how we might use that in a situation? Well, and if you're, if you're talking about, you know, technical sellers, so we'll, we'll call them sellers, but it's like sales engineers sure. and technical people. Um, the, the number one thing you want to teach them is that less is more. And the reason is that the more information they give, the harder it gets for the stakeholders that they're having a conversation with to make a decision. They get overwhelmed. And when they're overwhelmed with information, when information makes them doubt whether or not they can do an implementation or doubt whether or not this is the right thing for them or to create a situation where they're completely lost, like they feel stupid because the person's given them technical information that they don't understand. Right. In those situations, they're more likely not to make a decision. Like they're more likely to push it off. I need to think about this. Hey, let us get back together again. So less is more. Begin there. And uh, I talk a little bit about this in my book, Objections, where one of the things that creates objections is this concept of of you give them too much information. In fact, this morning I'm on a converse, I'm on a, a call or a training call with a group of reps, and we were having that exact conversation. The, the yesterday we had a session where we were teaching them how to answer questions by with confident language, but without telling them how the sausage is made. So we came back right. today and said, "Okay, talk me, walk me through how that worked." And what they found was that they were getting yeses, that people were saying, okay, that makes sense. They were moving forward. They were moving to the next step. They were buying where before they weren't closing anything because they were telling them everything. So you want to start there. Do you have an example of that kind of where the sausage is made question? Well, you just walk them through the entire process. I mean, a great example, like in technical would be, and this is a real, with us, we we were working with a partner for a big software company to do an implementation and we liked the salesperson and we decided to move forward and we got on with their sales engineers to walk through the details. And at the end of that call, we killed the deal. Like that, it scared the crap out of us. Like they were telling us like all the things that could go wrong. Wow. Like, okay. Okay. Stop. Like, I just want to know, <laughs> like, I want to know when it's going to go in. I want to know that you got this and I want to make sure that if something goes wrong, you got it covered. Yeah. I didn't need to know that. Well, you know, blah, 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 blah. And if this one, and you know, like after a while you're going, Whoa, yeah. I didn't know that could be that bad. So we went to another, another software company, a competing software company. We met with their folks and they said, it's going to be easy. We're going to do this. 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 Johnny's going to be sitting in the chair. If anything goes wrong, he's going to be there to troubleshoot. So you don't need to worry about anything. You go to bed on Saturday night, Sunday morning, you wake up, the whole thing's going to be implemented. And that was almost the entire meeting, right? Right. So the other one lasted three hours long and they gave us everything. So people don't need to know how the sausage is made. They don't need to know the internal processes by which you're going to accomplish something. They need to know the outcome for them. They need to know that you got them, everything's going to be okay, and that you're not going to disrupt their business. So primarily, you want to make sure that you're not saying things that create doubt in the customer's mind that they can trust 
that this is going to be okay. The last thing a stakeholder wants you to do is to mess up their business. And oh, by the way, and this is important to get, the number one reason why people don't change is their fear that you're going to, whatever you're going to do is going to screw up and it's going to screw up their business, screw up their processes, screw up their career. So all you got to do is assure them that everything's going to be okay. So for example, if you're sitting in a meeting and the customer says, well, what about that? Don't tell them the three times it didn't work. Tell them what works. So hold that stuff back. They don't need to know those things. They need to know that you're confident in your solution. Now, that doesn't mean that if you've got two engineers in the room having a conversation with each other, that the, you know, the, the engineer on your side doesn't need to share specific technical data right. with that other engineer that's going to be germane to getting something installed or getting something built. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. The problem in those situations is not so much too much information, it's too much ego. So mm. you've got one engineer talking and talking and talking and talking because engineers feel important when people think that they know a lot of stuff yeah. to another engineer who also wants to feel important and you have a <laughs> this clash of personalities and that can kill a deal. And likewise, you, in a lot of cases, if you're, if you've got a sales engineer or an engineer, a technical person going in and they're helping you with your deal, they have a tendency to talk because talking makes them feel super important. And that's yeah. why they spit out so much information. And, and you got to work with them and coach them on nobody cares if you're the smartest person in the room. So shut up. It's true. And, and you can often be too smart. And I think you mentioned yeah. it earlier, you know, especially these days when you're a tech company pitching to a CMO or even a CEO, yeah. they don't understand how the tech works and they don't want to either. It's no. like, no, I just I watched. We're doing a we're doing a um, a big network upgrade, and we were sitting with the a, the group that was walking us through it. And my CFO was uh, on the call because it's important, and we just and we're there more mostly to monitor that there aren't something there aren't things that are going to break our business when we do this transition. And they've got you know they're one of their technical guys on, and I watched my CFO literally sit there and go like this. And the reason that she was doing it because it was hurting her brain. Right, because the guy the guy was talking about stuff. Not a single person on our end understood a single acronym. Mm. Understood who he was talking about. None of us are technical. None of us. And he went on and on and on like that. And you know, they didn't. This deal didn't get killed because of it. Because we have to do this this upgrade. But we certainly didn't feel very good at the end. And if you know, if it was something, if we had the ability to go, we're not doing this. We would. Yeah. But it was like. I wanted it in the middle of it go, dude, just shut up. Like, seriously, just stop. Yeah. Nobody needs to know any of this stuff. Right. We don't, even my technical person said, I really don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> and he just kept on going. But that happens. The other thing that people are sometimes reluctant to do, and maybe this is a British thing. So get your advice on this. Closing is such an important topic. And I think perhaps in Britain, it's, it feels a bit rude and impolite to kind of ask for something and say, do we have a deal? And when are we going to sign? You know, what are your thoughts on closing, especially in a, a British society? I don't know. You know, I watch enough British TV that um, I'm always talking to my wife, I'm like the Brits are just so forward. I mean, they're just like, they're so like confident. They'll say anything to each other. Because if you watch BBC, like these conversations are just like, they're brutal. And uh, so I wouldn't, yeah. yeah, so I wouldn't like, I wouldn't peg it that way. Like I wouldn't say <laughs> that the, you know, the Brits are afraid of asking. I would say that most, 
most people in at least in western societies find that asking can be a bit distasteful like they they think that they need to wait hesitate but it's almost always because of where they fall on the empathy scale, not a cultural thing. Now, there are some cultures where negotiating and asking for what you want is baked into who they are. But, but overall, it's a, it's, it's a human thing mm. to back off when we ask because what we're afraid of is, is what could happen after we ask. We're afraid of the potential for objections or rejection. Right. And, uh, and that's just the truth. So, and there are big ask and small asks. Like there's the ask for time. So asking to get an appointment, that's the hardest ask there is. There's ask for micro commitments. Those are relatively easy. So you're, I'm just asking you to move the next step with me. And then there are big commitments like buying commitments. Those can be tougher. So what all I can teach people is, is that if you don't ask, like you're not going to get. So we have right. to start there. And if you're not asking often, you're probably going to have skinny kids. So if you're going to be in this profession, <laughs> the first thing we have to do is get good at asking. And the way we get good at asking is we begin with understanding where our fear comes from. It is not a psychological thing. It is not a cultural thing. It is a human thing mm. because human beings have developed over the last 40,000 years a sensitivity to being rejected because people who don't get rejected typically get along with people better. And those people typically are going to be able to pass on their, their, their genes. They're going to, they're going to survive. They're going to, they're going to accomplish things. We know where the lines are drawn, except for in sales and sales. We have to ask in sales. We have to face objections in sales. We have to deal with rejection and there's no other way around it. That is the truth. Yeah. So if we understand that it's not psychological, if we understand that it's neurological, it's baked into our DNA, then at that point, instead of trying to like let it roll off our back, what we realize is we need frameworks. So part of my framework, you talked about being confident, is I follow a sales process. I know that if people are engaged and they're moving forward when I ask, I know that the probability they say yes is much higher. So I'm able to to talk to myself and say, yeah, it feels uncomfortable, but I'm probably going to get what I want here because I've given them a good reason to give me what I want. I know how to explain value. And I know that I can deal with objections. So I know that if I ask confidently and I shut up, that A, I'm going to have much higher probability of getting what I want because I did that. And then if they tell me no or they ask a hard question, I know how to use a concept called a ledge. We talked about that earlier. I know how to clarify what it is that the problem is, just like we talked about earlier, just ask a question. And I know that if I can clarify it and listen to them, that I can explain the value or pitch the value in a way that causes them or compels them to want to move to the next step. I know mm -hmm. that. So I'm working on probability scales. Right. I'm typically working in 70% or higher probability territory. So if I play this, if I run that move, I have a really high probability of getting what I want. And I always have a fallback position. So if I don't get that, I can come back to it. So it's really, it's really process frameworks mechanism versus, oh, you know, you're, you, you just don't, you just, you know, you're, you're just too weak to ask for things. I, I don't play in that game. I, what I want to do is set myself up to win. But I, I will say, if you don't ask, you don't get and you have to ask. That is the truth. And uh, what I tell people all the time, you can't wait for them to do it for you because they're not. Your customers are going to do the job for you. You can't wish and hope it away. So you have to ditch your wishbone, grow a backbone, and you have to learn how to ask. But, 
But don't stop there. Go find the mechanisms. Go learn the process of asking. Yeah, it's a bit like the uh, coming second in a pitch. You, you see people who have great, in inverted commas, sales meetings, and they can't wait to get out and feel good about themselves. And you go, right, well, what, what action did you agree? Oh, well, I didn't. But the meeting exactly. went really well. I, that happens all the time. Like, okay, what's the next step? Well, we, I'll call them next week. No, <laughs> you, you, you didn't have a good meeting. Yeah. What are some firm next steps that you kind of recommend from any meeting? Something on their calendar and on your calendar. That's right. the firm next step. So it has to be their calendar, your calendar. It's not wishy-washy, call me maybe, I'll get with you next week. It is, you're going to get information from me. I'll, we're, we have a meeting on, on Wednesday to go through that. It is, yeah, okay, now let's get together on, you know, on the 30th at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Same time, I always go, same time, same bat channel. I did that yesterday on a sales call. So, we're, you know, we've got a meeting in two weeks. But the, the best next step is something that's on your calendar, their calendar. Can you, can you tell me a bit more about you? I'm interested. How did you get into all of this? How did you even, you know, obviously your dad, but what are, did you have inspirations or people, mentors, books that really helped you in this world? Um, you know, I, I learned a lot of it just by being on the street. So I've been selling since I was a kid. I started off, um, you know, in high school, I had sold ads for our yearbook. Um, I've, I read, you know, everything that's been written from Dale Carnegie to get Jeffrey Gittimer to Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, uh, you know, Tom Hopkins. I mean, you think about everybody out there, Neil Rackham. Uh, so I, I, I read extensively and I don't just read sales books. I read a lot of psychology books. I read leadership books. I listen to podcasts that may not have anything to do with selling because I, because for me, like everything is selling. So I'm able to connect those disparate ideas together and uh, in ways that allow us to have a conversation about sales. I mean, if you go back to sales EQ, for example, I, I, I did and read 800 different like academic studies on psychology. And the thing about that was that made it so difficult was that I, I had to like distill that into something that would actually be interesting to people because right. like it's being like watching paint dry, reading some of these things. <laughs> And I'll, and I'll won't, you know, never forget, I was in, uh, in your neck of the woods, I was in the Shetland Islands, uh, and I was in an Airbnb in Lurwick, and I was like, because Sales EQ just right, was killing me because it was such a hard book. Yeah. And I, I'm like, I'm sitting in there, and I'm sitting in this Airbnb. I let, my family left me, like, they're all gone, and I'm trying to get this book to, like, make sense. And, you know, and it was, I was listening to a podcast and it was a spark of an idea that came back to something I'd read in a history book. And all of a sudden, boom, one of those things sort of cascaded and it came together and I was able to write something that you found interesting. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of my stories, Danny, is that, you know, I remember every place I wrote a book, like everywhere I was when the ideas came around. But, but for me, the, you know, the inspiration's been, it's, it's a combination of lots of things. Uh, and I've had some great leaders. I, I, my, one of my books, uh, Fanatical Prospecting, I dedicated about Blackwell, one of the greatest minds in sales. And I was able to really learn from, from him and take those ideas and build on them. But the hardest thing in my entire career has been, okay, I'm really good at this craft of selling and I have been my entire life. It just makes sense to me. Everything slows down when it comes to selling. How do you take that 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 information, what you do, and 
take that out of sort of the savant world. I'm just good at this as a talent mm. and then drill it into something that is a process and a system for other people. And by the way, write it in a way that people actually want to read. Yeah, That's really been the, the journey that I've been on and will continue to stay on is, uh, is making, making it as accessible to people, making it real for people, not a bunch of, uh, of pandering to salespeople, not a bunch of things that people can completely see through and say, this is complete BS. It would never work for me is how do I build things in a way that, that really connects with people. And that, uh, that just takes time, effort, and, and a lot of focus. And I think stepping into the shoes of the people that you're writing for and thinking, thinking, thinking about it from their standpoint is just something that, that makes sense to them. And obviously listeners can find all of your books on Amazon and all the, the regular places. But you've also got Sales Gravy, which you haven't actually mentioned at all yet. Tell us about Sales Gravy. Yeah, Sales Gravy is an amazing website. Um, we've, uh, I'd love for people to go check out uh, all the content we have. And in particular, go check out Sales Gravy University. You can go check that out at learn.salesgravy.com. And Sales Gravy University is amazing. It's growing so fast. We're about to have our biggest month ever. Uh, and it's where you know a lot of small sales teams and a lot of really big companies get content so that they can learn. So we've got online courses, we've got live virtual courses, so you can join people all around the world in a classroom with one of our master trainers. And uh, and we just launched mastermind groups that have been insane. It's been I can't believe how successful this has been. Where you can join a mastermind group with like a peer group, and you can have the same conversation, Danny, that you and I've been having about real issues and challenges you're facing. So I recommend people go to go check out salesgravy.com, go check out Salesgravy University, and certainly go you know go 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 to places and buy my books. I love that when you do that. Fantastic. And just before you leave, what are your final words of wisdom? Um, my final words of wisdom for everything we've been talking about is keep the pipeline full. If you have a full pipeline, you're going to be so much better at everything you do in sales. You're going to have a much higher EQ. You're going to um, you're going to have the ability to sell like you don't have to sell. So a lot of the things that we talk about that may seem hard when you have an empty pipeline get really really easy when you don't need to make a sale. And that would be my my, my number one piece of advice. When it's time to go home, make one more call. Fantastic. Jeb, thank you so much for your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I know everyone listening to will have as well. Thanks, Danny. I appreciate it. It's been awesome. This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity, and much more.